On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome, welcome, welcome back to Studio Secrets A to Z. I'm your host, Anthony J. Resta, and today we have a distinguished guest. Um, it's our, it's actually our first woman audio engineer, producer, uh, mixer extraordinaire, Lenise Bent, who's a legend and one of my favorite, some of my favorite records um, she worked on, Asia by Steely Dan, Super Tramp, uh, Breakfast uh, America, what, how do you say it? Breakfast of... Bre- Breakfast in America. Uh, yeah, it's, I always say of America, which yeah. is wrong but wonderful to have you thank you so much for coming we're so excited i got a million things to ask you well thank you for having me i'm pretty excited too this is so much fun it's really good to be here well i i I met you at the composer uh breakfast club um um, it's got to be five years six years oh my god yeah Uh, and you i sat next to you and you, you were just so kind and nice and I, and then I, I when I figured out who you were I was like well how why is she so nice and, and like, you know because <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes legendary people tend to be a little bit snooty you know so um and I, I I don't know if it was that day or another time on Facebook somewhere I my favorite story is the one that you told about your very first session with Steely Dan the day that you went in I'll see if you remember this it was the song on what danger on the rocks is what's that well the danger oh, oh. on the rocks it wasn't my first day okay but it was a memorable four tell, days yeah tell us that that's one of the best stories i've ever heard in my entire life so give well, let's start with that one because that one's going to blow people's minds okay well i was um the assistant um at the village studios for um back then it was known as the village recorder okay and i worked there with um five other assistants and Four out of the six assistants there, do the math, um, were women, okay. myself included. Wow. And that was really monumental and wonderful. So, um, uh, And we would be put on different projects here and there. But the uh, first album project, full one, that I had prepared for by working on lots of other projects as assisting was the Asia album. Oh, wow. Steely Dan. So, um, and... Uh, they are uh, known, as everybody knows, that uh, they are very particular <laughs> in what they want and what they hear. And Donald um, wasn't always very fond of being the lead singer, and so when we had to do vocals and all, it was it was pretty excruciating for him at the time. And um, so, uh, you know, it was it. Those were tough sessions, but uh, there was a particular session and story uh, that I get asked to tell on occasion. Um, working on a song called "Home at Last." Home at Last, that's it. Yes, and um, 
there is a section that happens, I'm pretty sure, three times. I've, I've kind of blocked out a lot of this because <laughs> it was you know, a little PTSD action here. Yeah. Um, just setting this up. <laughs> uh, there is a line that goes, uh, Well, the danger on the rocks is surely past. Yeah. Well, the... Okay, keep that your head um so that happens like three maybe four times in the song i can't remember but but uh so back then you're recording to tape you're not going to pro tools digital you can't move it around nothing like that and uh in donald's head he had a certain phrasing certain pitch certain everything about those Two two words and so um the deal was that uh He'd gotten all the way through the song, but he just hadn't nailed it in his head, the, those two words every time they came up. And so that's what we did this session. We start out to do this. Song. So here's Monday. Um, we go in, and um, so it's, uh, and we had evenings. So we'd work from like six until we were done either musically or just in our heads. Late night. Yeah. But it uh, didn't work that long, really. The, you know, 10, 11, 12, something like that. Um, so we go in, and there is a lead-up, uh, you know, an instrumental lead-up for those two lines. It goes, da 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 So that's where we punched. Right. Punch. Well, the... Yeah. Punch out. Okay. Not right, not right. Okay. da 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 Well, the... Well, the, well, the, well, the. So, the first night, we did the melody of well, the. And so, the second night, we doubled it. Well, the, well, the. Okay. For hours and, and hours and hours. Yes. And then, the third night... We did the harmony. Well the well the And guess what we did the fourth night? The harmony double. We did. We doubled the harmony. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Well the Wow. So let me just tell you that uh <laughs> after four days of this of well the I uh I was having nightmares already. Yeah. And uh I went up to the studio manager's office, Dick LaPalm. Um Who's from Chess Records and ran the studio, and he was he was just great and very close to them. And I went up to him and I said, "I can't stand it! I can't stand it!" <laughs> well da, well da, well da. And he said, "You get back down there and you go stay in that room." <laughs> and says, "I promise you, this will be one of the best records you ever worked on. You just stick that out and you just go back down there." And I went, oh, "Okay, okay." And I went back down there, and he, of course, he was absolutely right. And um, but he would be the one through the years. He'd call up from Chicago or call up from and go, Lenise, tell the story. They don't believe me. It's a great story, and I, wow. I, it's, a, it's a fly in the wall moment that you can only get firsthand from you. What would go on between like takes? I mean, how many? Like they do like ten, and then take a breather, or is this just kind of nonstop? Well, there would be Gary Katz, the producer. Sure. There would be Roger Nichols, the engineer. Yeah. Um, me the assistant and um and walter would be there and donald would be out in the room and so it would be taking turns of uh well gary katz 
any time after any line or anything Donald would do, he'd go, one more. You know, he's from Brooklyn. <laughs> one more. And so when it got to all he would do is just like either hold up his finger, meaning one more, or point as his ear listening. Okay. So that's what you do. And so he'd, if you knew right away it was one more, but if we listen, we would listen. Or if he liked it, he'd, he'd say, come in. And so Donald would come in, and he would listen, and then, of course, he wouldn't like it, and he would go back out. <laughs> so um, it was, a, it's, you know, variations on that theme at wow. all for every the hour of that, just, those sessions. That's just amazing. I mean, and then finally, when you had it, I mean, it almost seems like it would be time for a celebration of some kind of thing, but you guys got to get on to the next thing. It's like it, Well, no, we took Friday off. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That was the celebration because <laughs> we were all uh, well. I don't know about them. I would assume they were as, as you know. That's very stressful. Oh my gosh! Kind of repetition. I, it's, it's it's just incredible, and the, the level of detail that they're known mm-hmm. for. I mean, like with all the different drummers that would come through, mm-hmm. and then one guy would see the other guy packing up his drums as he's coming in. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was they would just go through all these different drummers, and they're they're just looking for something so specific. And I, you know, I find that really uh, admirable and incredible, and the legacy that they leave. It kind of it, it, it it's there for that reason. I I feel well, like it was uniquely them in that sense that uh, they knew what they wanted, they knew what sound they wanted, or they would search for that right sound or style or that solo or whatever it was but they would have something specific in mind they weren't in a band yeah uh and they didn't always want the same people on the same record it wasn't about that which was um uh upsetting to anybody who played on their record they go wow i played on a steely dan record and then they find out you know in the case of the song peg there were eight guitar solos recorded on that before they settled on the 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 last one was Jay Graydon. They had to take it whether they liked it or not. So uh, thank goodness it was. That's just an iconic solo. I mean that. Yeah. The whole that was the Royal Scam, right? That's that's a no. Note. That's Asia. Okay, I'm I'm, gonna, I'm thinking mm-hmm. Kid Charlemagne. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's Larry Carlton. Larry Carlton, yeah. Yeah. These records are just like growing up as a kid. Like I remember the very first time I heard Asia, a friend of mine had his dad was an audiophile and he had these like great big JBL speakers like Mm -hmm. from the 70s, the ones that had like giant magnets. You know, they were like, you know, everything was it was an incredible stereo. And I remember he dropped the needle on Asia and we sat there, listened to the first side from start to to finish kind of in the dark, I think. Mm-hmm. in this room and I mean it just it's life changing because you know it just the sound I mean it's right. there's really no words to well, describe it's all it. analog it's yeah. recorded to tape it's mixed to tape it's mastered from the tape Yeah. so there's all ons uh, there's no uh, ones and zeros it's all one big one yeah <laughs> and there are frequencies everywhere so you know it's just this cushy round big mm-hmm. Everything's there. Your second and tertiary harmonics, you know, frequencies way beyond a spectrum of audio hearing, yeah. but our body hears it. Yeah. You that, know, it's a total somatic experience. 
that's that's just it's incredible and my, my dad was a geophysicist and he used to explain mm. to me um he used to record things in the megahertz like they would oh yeah you know there you go so and he would explain to me the reason why analog sounds so good is because in nature a sine wave is is smooth mm -hmm. and, and in the digital world no matter how many bits or whatever it's still going to be jagged to some point you know well also uh it's just samples yeah so for as many ones or ons or content you have yeah. how many zeros do you have yeah what's that's a rhetorical question. Yeah. How many do you have? You know the answer to this. I, I, I might know it, but I don't know I know it. <laughs> oh, my God. See, this is the oh, thing. Oh, it's one, ones and zeros, aren't they? Like, like, they so if yeah. you have, let's say, 50 ones, how many zeros do you 50. have? 50. There you go. So okay. what does that tell you? How much of your information is not there? Oh, half of it. There you go. Wow. That's the, that's a visceral. You never thought of that. I never did thought of you? that. No, I never. Well, did. and that more people should. Wow. And I bring that up uh, in all these archiving conferences and um, different uh, yeah. specific um, panels and things, and I'll just you know raise my hand and go, um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, but it doesn't it mean you know that there are ones and zeros and for every zero what's in the zero is there any content in that and these you know people look at me like i, I don't know <laughs> i have never thought about it. they have never thought what digital means what it what the word sample means it means just a part yeah and um and then they look at me like Oh, you poor old thing, you know. Uh, and then I just keep asking, you know, just tell me if I'm wrong. Doesn't that mean that a lot of information isn't there? Oh, yes, well, but, but and no, they don't know. Yeah. They've never thought about it. They yeah. don't know what analog is. They don't know the difference between digital and analog because all they've had is digital and they've never questioned it like so many things in our world. People that's, don't question. That's fascinating. It really is. You know, mm -hmm. and there's it's probably why there's such a resurgence maybe in vinyl because like people are discovering it. I mean, some of it's a fad and stuff like that, but people are discover rediscovering w records, you know. And, 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 and well, one part of it is that you get an emotional response. It's as close as uh, having um, a live performance because all the frequencies are there. There's a lot more in a live and they're circling and going everywhere or, or whatever. And so you have this wonderful, you know, joy or angst or anger, or, you know, whatever it makes you want to do, jump in the mosh pit, I don't know. It's, it's a visceral thing. It's Yeah, like, very visceral, very physical, very somatic, one of my favorite words. I like yeah, that I've word too. I've said it twice already. <laughs> um, and, uh, <laughs> it's great. Yeah, and um, for digital... Uh, when CDs first came out, see, I'm I'm old enough to remember this. Yeah. The feeling felt different. It wasn't just wow, these are cleaner or whatever. It was like, and then it just didn't speak to you like a vinyl record did, and nobody really thought why. But uh, suddenly, music became background music. Where before, with you would look forward to somebody's new release coming out. Um, <laughs> One great example of this is when um, Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life was going to come out. They scheduled it for noon on a Friday, and I was working on a session with 
uh, Art Garfunkel and um, Barry Becker and Baker Bixby was the engineer and he actually ran down to Tower Records right at noon to get um, in line. To, well, he got one. Uh, at, if, if the tower was in Westwood and the village was not far away. So he ran over there, got one, brought it back. He'd set up the turntable and all of that in Studio B at the village and um, just stopped and listened to that two record set, all of us, you know, on Amazing. Art Garfunkel's dime um, because uh, it was so anticipated and everybody knew how magnificent it was going to be and there was no better listening environment than where we were right then and to listen to it first all together i've got goosebumps just telling you about this this is amazing that's how what listening to music and what music creation was and still is on a certain level but people just don't know they've never had that quality or that experience where because all the frequencies and they're you know one big sample yeah <laughs> sample rate of one to one um you got it all and the joy of sir duke and sure. oh my gosh um, you know, living for the city and just the heaviness, and you just were taken on this emotional, musical, creative, yeah. wonderful ride together. Yeah, that's incredible. All listening, not, not nobody dared talk over it, and um, that's, that's what listening was. Yeah, it's it's like a culturally, it drove the culture. It wasn't it wasn't background noise. Like you know, no, and, not and at that's all. the difference that. I, I try to explain to people and they, I think there's a generation of kids that are rediscovering you know thousand dollar headphones and really getting into like Grado headphones and getting into the the audio aspect mm-hmm. of, you know you, you, I'm seeing like a surgence of younger people that are really starting to explore what good audio is and I, I think that that's one of the reasons why we like doing the podcast is to try to share information with young people and try to influence the next generation because not everything has to be you know cookie cutter super you know bright and over compressed and all that you know it's like there, there's room for people to learn and t- try to experience it like as a kid listening to dark side in the moon mm-hmm. on your back like with yeah. your eyes closed on a pillow in the dark and you listen to the whole but, thing well we and we'd have big speakers yeah and you know so it would be resonating off the environment and it would usually uh you wanted to make sure it had high ceilings and, but not a lot of right angles and you know, kind of, so the sound just swirled around you. A, Dark yeah. Side was, uh, just one of the greatest records to listen to. I know for all to, sorts this of day, to this day. To this day, I mean, it's just it's just incredible. Yeah, it was so wonderfully produced and, and engineered and well, besides it just being this magnificent creation of Pink yeah. Floyd, but we didn't often listen on headphones yeah then um you, you did sort of those big but, ugly green but cost um, ones yeah well no they <laughs> we would have uh akg 140s all oh, right sure and, in the studio um, that's different yeah. but uh even at home you yeah. know because you had to take rough mixes home and also you wanted things Something. to translate but uh, you weren't necessarily mixing for headphones and uh like uh today that that really is a you know the main reference i think a lot of people anymore because so many people don't have uh listening proper listening environments yep. so it's wonderful 
to mix in a proper mixing environment, but you better play it back on your iPhone. You better play it back through a laptop speakers. Sure. You better play it back through, uh, you know, earbuds. Yeah, because that's what AirPods. people are listening on. So, Well, yeah, and it has to sound good there. And that's, um, I'm going to jump right into this about immersive audio. Yep. Um, that's uh, my big question about all of that and how people are creating all these wonderful uh, 7.1.4 rooms and then yeah. 9.1.6 rooms. Uh, and then the end listener is just going to be listening on ho- hopefully something that's binaural, but maybe sure, not. Like that's or they can adjust it, their AirPods and it'll say spatial and that may sound better. It's on not the Apple. same as listening on no. the nine speakers. Well, yeah. so all of those great immersive mixes need to be listen to on headphones and mix for headphones as well yeah that's 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 like a, a phase nightmare if you think about it i mean i don't even understand how like that can translate to binaural even i mean that's a, another whole conversation mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's really fascinating and it's it's interesting but like i i talked to um one of mastering engineers that we love is Brian Lucy. He's really big. Oh, yeah. I know Bri- Brian well. Brian, Brian's a dear friend of ours, and he's yes. just really knowledgeable about all this stuff. And, yes. And he's like, a lot of people that are doing the Atmos mixes tend to forget that like the things that are mono, like the kick drum and the, and the vocal and the bass, need to be really grounded so that you have this experience. And there's too many people that don't really have the background that they let do these things and it's like music in a blender he calls it and, and it's just it's it's not really fun to listen to music in a blender that's Mm-mm. not really the point Mm-mm. so there's a lot of uh, you know uh, it's going to take a while for it to sort itself out I'm after this this evening that's why I have to leave when I do uh, the audio engineering society is their meeting tonight is at a theater uh, in on Vine and it's all about immersive spatial audio and their presentations and all of that. And it's, you know, everybody's still trying to figure it out. And uh, hopefully they do before the end listener general public goes, oh, I'm fine with stereo. Yeah, <laughs> that's what they did with quad, right? <laughs> well, it quad um, um, surround five, five um, DVD audios yeah. that, that uh, came out in... Um, yeah, the floppies, the big or the big no, ones. No, 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 DVDs. You know, DVDs that you watch movie on. Oh yeah, that's right. Movies on, and everybody got their home theater systems, even though they put their, you know, um, their surround speakers in places that were attractive in the room and not necessarily where they sounded the living good. room. Yeah. And but uh, <laughs> the whole point of DVD audios was to piggyback on that format, yeah. and so you could do more than just have. A movie or watch a movie on a DVD you could have DVD audio but you had to sit in that sweet spot and how many um, people in their motorhomes or whatever you know trailers or whoever had their their home theater systems some of them had nice ones but rarely were they the uh, paramount interest in the room and you built the rest of the room around that very you built few, that yeah. you made that work in your living room that'd be one percent of the people may do that i mean it's like the yeah. audiophile type yeah. my, my friend fletcher who ran a mercenary audio he was uh, oh you know mm-hmm. fletcher too yes. yeah yeah you know he used to say it's never gonna it's never gonna work because the wives won't allow that many wires in the living room <laughs> <laughs> this is true you have to learn how to run them through um you know conduits in the walls 
Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals, uh, I know a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, uh, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Um, I'd like to go rewind a little bit and go back sure. to your your childhood and talk about like <gasps> like you know growing up and what like what did mm -hmm. you listen to and what, what oh god let's let's go back let's rewind well, a little bit. Uh, I grew up in Compton. Okay. Let's start there. Okay. I'm a homie. All right. And uh, as I say, you know, Lenice bent out of Compton. <laughs> and it's just so corny, but that you know, so we got that out of the way. <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, and I'm the youngest of six kids. Wow. And we um, so. And, and my oldest sister is 16 years older than I am, and my oldest brother's 13 years older than I am, and then there's two in the middle, and there's two of us on the end. But I got all of their music 
And so I could listen to um, Elvis and I could listen to, um, uh, oh God, there was so many great old, uh, the coasters and R&B, they called them race music back then. And they were, my oldest sister, she even had some on 78s before they came out on, um, you know, 45s and, or LPs, long, long playing discs. Uh, with micro grooves, yeah. you know, and at a slower speed, 33 and a third. Uh, so you could monetize that, you, you know, more music for your buck. And uh, all of these things, so I'm the youngest, so I got to bring all of that in, and I was so totally tuned into it from right out of the shoot. And my family was musical as well, and so we still to this day all get together and sing oh, that's and when family gatherings it's so corny but it's a lot of fun and so there was always music around and I actually um, had an uncle who was quite good in what would be called Americana music right now and uh, so he would come and bring his banjo and his Martin and sing and play and he taught me how to harmonize when I was Oh and, my gosh! Um, yeah, and uh, I just idolized him, and um, so there was always music being played or performed. And my mother used to be on the radio with her sister oh singing. Oh my goodness! Really? That's that, yeah, on a on a show called um, Cliffy Stone's Town Hall Party. If it came out of Compton, there was a lot of music wow. in the fifties and early sixties in Compton. Wow, California, yeah. So, um, so she did that. So, if there was just that vibe going on, and also we were in orchestra, okay, too. Um, there in Compton, they had a wonderful educational. Their, their um, school system was the Compton elementary Compton school system. It wasn't L.A. city. It's Compton city okay. school system. So they had you know, art classes and special, um, you know, early bird math classes and science things and the um, Compton Festival Orchestra. So all the kids in all the elementary schools who were, they had orchestras and bands at the, you know, starting in the third grade. And they the mm-hmm. school system loaned you uh, an instrument if you couldn't afford one. So, th- you know, we had that. And we started there, and my older brother was in orchestra before, so as soon as I was old enough, boy, I was in there playing flute, and my other brother played trumpet, and and so we made our first records Wow! at the uh, uh, festival orchestra. And so I learned how to read a score. I learned how to play with other musicians. I learned how to balance what I'm doing with my other musical colleagues. And uh, this has been so instrumental in me moving forward in all different parts of my career, Um, whether it was just just being a recording engineer, but also I did a lot of post-production and foreign dubbing supervising for DreamWorks, and the reason I got that gig was because I knew how to read a score that I learned in elementary school in Compton. So, yay, Compton. That's incredible. Wow, so what what a background. And I I read that you did something with languages for, like, Shrek and Shrek. Yeah, that's what... um, Tell us about that. That's really interesting. Well, um, 
as the industry goes for animated features or children's um, films or whatever, um, for adult movies, typically they're only dubbed in what's called figs, French, Italian, German, and Spanish, and then sometimes in Mandarin now. That's yep. you know, But those five and the rest are subtitled. Well, for children's and family movies, kids can't read subtitles. So they need to be dubbed in up to 70 different languages. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So there's a slew of people who are foreign dubbing supervisors, meaning they are the ones who oversee the foreign versions of, say, for me, it was Shrek or Shrek 2 or a few other ones. And um, you make sure that the um, vision of Jeffrey Katzenberg or DreamWorks is in place and because they're not translations, they're adaptations, meaning uh, sure. it will be meaningful and funnier and all of that in that particular, what they call territory, country, wow. or whatever. So you oversee it and you work with the translator and to make sure that... Um, it's the jokes context. are funny or, and are not offensive or, you know, because I worked on Shrek 2 in, in Istanbul. I did the Greek and Turkish versions of that. And, for example, they have a scene where um, um, Donkey and Puss in Boots, if you've seen Shrek, all you out yep. there in listening land. Um, and so they're in this, hiding in this cupboard and... Um, Donkey says, get your litter-licking face out of my side or whatever. And so I had to explain to them what a litter-licking thing was. And and they already, you know, the Muslim country, and they rarely, I mean, quite often they didn't want somebody to come in from, you know, the homeland and uh, say, uh, you know, oversee what they're doing. They felt they had it, you know, yeah. and why should somebody come and supervise them? And a lot of people, so I would just come in the first day, wherever country I was, I go, hi, I'm, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm the one from America and I'm here to nitpick yeah. and, and we'll get this done and it'll be fun. Yeah. And so I'd win them over. Yeah. But uh, quite often, and this was time where uh, politically we weren't in great favor with the rest of the yeah, world. Yeah, and, uh, that's tough. So they would be saying, well, we don't hate you, we just hate your country and politics. And I'd <laughs> say, hey, listen, I get it, you know, so sorry. Anyway, um, so um, so you'd, you'd get pushback on that level. And one thing that kept happening in the Turkish version with that one Thing, litter licking. I had to explain to them that in um, in America, um, we had uh, boxes in the house with <laughs> stuff in it, and the the cat would go to the bathroom in the house, and they go they go look at me, go, oh, we don't have that here, <laughs> and I say, I know, I know, it sounds horrible, and it is horrible, <laughs> but w- that's what, and and it's called kitty litter and <laughs> and that's and the and so 
you know, and trying to explain that, oh, it just sounded disgusting. That's a studio secret right there. That's what yeah. we're here for. You know, yeah. nobody is going to know that. Except- and here I'm, tr- you know, I'm digging a <laughs> bigger kitty litter hole and uh, it's not getting any better. But fortunately, by that time, I'd already won them over. Um, and uh, <laughs> so we'd had some good times together. But when I had to explain that line and what, and so what do you have, what could you say that would be funny in Turkish that would make sense yeah. make sense and not be offensive? That's not easy. Well, no, they, well, actually that's why it's called an adaptation because every single country would have something because uh, there would be lines all through those movies that did make any sense to them. Wow. That they're jokes. Never thought of Our that. jokes, our colloquialisms, they don't have, or they're nursery rhymes. Like in Shrek, there was, you know, do you know the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man? Well, they don't know the Muffin Man. They don't have nursery rhymes. So I was in Brazil for that. Okay. I was doing the... What a great gig, traveling around the world. Are you kidding me? All those different, yeah, amazing. I loved that gig. They sent me all over the place, and and I I got to make the movie sound the way I wanted it to. That's incredible. It it was, yeah, and uh, and it was, and they were all just wonderful people. I I had great, great experiences, and I'm, I'm still friends with these people all around the world. So that's what you can do with audio. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. That, that blows my mind. It's like, so coming out, you're, we went to your childhood, and you, we, you learned how to read. You did orchestra things, and you moved well, up. Also, as a child, that yeah. you can do when you grow up in Hollywood, or Compton, not far from Hollywood, um, you can go to work early in the Screen Children's Guild. And ah. my brother Richard and I were put to work uh, when we were each eight years old as well, signed us up for the Screen Children's Guild. And so when they needed kids on a TV show, on a movie, on a commercial, on anything, um, you know, and you looked like you could be the part, they'd call you up, you'd go and audition with, a, you know, a whole bunch of people to be a catacall, cattle call of kids, and they'd say, okay, you, 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 and you, it's okay, thanks, bye, and so the next day you'd show up on the set, and, and you know, um, there'd be a lot of waiting around, you had class on the set, wow. but you had a lot of time to hang out behind the camera and bug the cameraman like what are you doing now or just yeah. knew not to ask but just hang out there and learn and watch and see all of that and then they say okay cue the kids and I go oh no I have to go work now can I come back and they say yeah 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 you can come back so I'd go and do whatever the thing was I was supposed to do and and then I could come back and hang out behind the camera so I got into production film production as a little kid. And so you were interested in the technology, it. like the actual... Always. Yeah. That's, a, that's so amazing. That's, that's great. Well, you know, yeah. that's, that's the thing. Everybody is born with stuff that they're interested in and just things that they like to do or not do. Yeah. And um, I was more interested as a young child in, in putting puzzles together and building things with building blocks or erector sets or um, Lincoln Logs, which none of you guys know anything about, um, and uh, instead of dolls in-house. And I just had no interest. I mean, I was just repelled by those things. Why would anybody want to do that? You know? How about radio? I live that. Did you like to listen to a lot of the radio back oh, then? Oh, God, I listened. Well, I, yeah, all of the radio stations, uh, 
I'm not so old that they had. I'm TV was happening <laughs> <laughs> and had been around for some time. Good. So uh, yes. No, that's cool. I'm just I'm trying to get my head around yeah, like how it, how it went from, you know. Well, Just, listening to yeah. the radio all the time, we always had the radio going, always, you know, early rock and roll stuff, and um, and my older sister and brother were in junior high, which is now middle school, and they always had dances, and they would come, and they first would teach you how to dance, and then you'd have a dance, and so my, my brother... Danny would come back, and he was 12, and I was 5, and he would teach me all the dances. Oh, wow. And, and we'd play all the songs. And so I had the great fortune of learning all sorts of stuff from my older siblings. So by the time I came around to it in school, I, you know, I saw all sorts of stuff because they would do homework and junk at home you know and so i was i just soaked it up like a sponge and but musically i was kind of you know i remembered all the songs and all the lyrics and they said i was more of a teenager than any of them even before i went to you know kindergarten and uh so it was i was wired for that yeah and my oldest brother worked at an electronics store here we go now it's starting to come together. yes and so he was 16 and i was three and um so he would bring home his jans electronics on rosecrans so the older guys know all about it especially in the hood they, oh yeah jans electronics so um he worked there and would bring home broken amps and broken stuff and had a workbench and he would plug them in and turn them on, and I would smell the vacuum tubes heat up. Yeah. And that smell to this day is like one of my most comforting smells, and just that whole thing in solder. Yes, solder. And I love the smell what, of solder. Yeah, all of that whole electronics bench thing yeah. we had going on. And my dad was a dean of Northrop University. Well, eventually he was an instructor till he became dean, but he wrote all these textbooks. And, and so I started cutting and pasting, literally setting up his books for revision in uh, like the third grade. A lot happened when I was A lot eight. of language stuff. So you yeah. had a lot of language background. Yeah, and um, so uh, there was a lot of technology and a lot of science and a lot of music. Wow! In my uh, environment, and that—that's what I went to. And when they tried to get me dolls, I would say, "Can you get me a model instead?" Or when I got my flute, I started taking it apart and putting it back together because <laughs> it was fun, and that flipped them out. And but that was the point. Being, we all have this thing that we gravitated to, and then suddenly one day, hopefully, you go into a room and it's a recording studio and you look in and you go you mean people get paid to do this for a living and this is how records are made and it, uh, it everything lines up a light bulb up. a light bulb went well off. you know all the planets align and the angels rejoice and you go that's it this is what i do American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. 
Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. So was the, was the village recorder your first job as a... Uh... Well, that was my first job. But uh, what happened was um, I was in... Um, my boyfriend from elementary school, Robert, uh, <laughs> he had a band, and um, we were together for like 12, we went steady for 12 years with a wow. slight break. Yeah, but anyway, from 12 to 24, so during that time, he had these bands, and he was a really good singer, Robert Fleshman, he became the lead singer of Journey before Steve Perry. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so... <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, so his guitar player, Roger... Um, said one day, oh, wow, I got this gig um, engineering for Leon Russell. He has a studio in his home. Oh, my And gosh. nobody had a home studio back then. I mean, you you know, uh, and Leon Russell being part of the Wrecking Crew, but also Mad Dog's an Englishman and an Huge amazing fan. singer-songwriter on his own. And I was an enormous fan of his. So oh when Roger said, you need to come over and see this, and I just, well. Hello? Yeah. Um, Forget wow. about forget about the studio. I want to meet Leon Russell, and uh, but I'd never been in a recording studio before, and uh, so after school that day, because I was um, I was like nineteen, and so wow. I was in film school, and Roger was eighteen, and um, so after school I went over to Leon's house in Encino, and. Uh, rang the doorbell and Leon answers and oh I almost gosh. and he says uh, oh you must be Roger's friend come on in and uh, we, I got goosebumps I'm sorry yeah, it's killing me it's true we too, wow. I almost fainted I almost fainted <laughs> really uh, but I pulled it together because I heard once I got into the foyer um, where a dining room was supposed to be in this house he'd converted this big mid-century house into a recording studio so um, I look to the right where he's pointing where Roger is and it's all lit up bright and there's a console and there's a, a Stevens 40-track tape machine. There's, uh, you know, um, outboard gear. There's monitors. But mostly there's this amazing music coming out of the speakers. It's um, 21 tracks of his uh, then-wife Mary McCrary singing... Um, the backgrounds for a song called Little Hideaway on the Will of the Wisp album. That's what they were working on. And literally, Whoa. it was, I walk in and I hear these angels singing and I see this and it truly was my epiphany. And that's when I said, Roger, show me how to work this thing. And <laughs> the, You knew right then. Right then, it was like I got hit by lightning. And so... Whew. the. I uh, 
dropped out of film school, found a recording school, signed up the next day, and then told my parents. And and, uh, and it was like, you know, get out the nails if because I'm going to do this, you know, if I'm not asking. <laughs> um, yeah, um, yeah, this isn't a question. <laughs> and um, um, so they were good with it. And so instead of going to university then on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I went to school Monday and Wednesday nights for engineering. Didn't understand a thing, flipped out, called Roger, and he said, come over. And uh, so I went over, and he would show me this is what a limiter does. This is what compression does. This is an equalizer, and, you know, play play with this. This is a Poltec, and this is what a Keepex does, and this is, you know, yeah. gating, and this is all these different things. And wow. uh, so I could go to school at night and learn, and then, because they only talked about it in lecture, and then go and... and play at Leon's house. Hands-on. Hands-on at Leon's. And um, the little sidecar about that is Roger, um, being 18 years old and engineering and also a good guitar player and all of that. But he, uh, uh, excellent guitar player, actually, and songwriter. Um, He was working on his little invention at the time, which was the Lindrum. So it's Roger Lynn. Roger Lynn. Oh yeah. my gosh! I've you know that was my very first piece of gear. Oh my gosh! Well, and I, I've met him a few times. He's yes. one of my heroes. Well, there's an MPC three thousand right behind you, oh. with the with Roger's signature. Oh on it. my gosh! Well, see, he was a That's guitar a, player in Roger's band, in, in Robert's band. Oh, oh my gosh! Or Roger says world. no. Robert was the lead singer in my band. Right. But um, that's that's just freaking me out right isn't that, isn't that amazing <laughs> see i was supposed to you know these are studio I, secrets like big time i couldn't help what i do <laughs> that's I, incredible i mean yeah. so, what a what a story so, so he was already like visualizing the lindrum back oh that, it was it he was all done with it before he was 21 you know that's just had, it was patented and he was you know going to the bank a lot getting loans at that time yeah uh Big double-edged sword for him, though, of course. You yeah, know, people either loved it or hated him for making it. And he said, I never created this to replace drummers. It was as a just another tool. Another tool, yeah. Yeah. And uh, he said, I, it wasn't to get yeah. rid of anybody's jobs. And But uh, so it was, you know, he paid dearly for that. Um, and thank God he did create that, and he's so, still a, creating like crazy. And you know, the, at one point, Lindrums were selling for three hundred dollars, and now they sell for like seven grand and up. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're wonderful machines. It's uh, it's got a, a soul in it. The same thing as the MPC three thousand. Like whatever algorithm he used to create the swing mm-hmm. and everything, really influenced a whole number of generations. Because I mean, first of all, you sure. had all the, you know, the your love is a battlefield, but you know, uh-huh. your, your boys of summer and all the Prince stuff. Doves cry. You yeah. Know, it just it had a it had a sound and a feel that. Really, exactly. Really worked. That was for that. And what I find so interesting is like uh, my first influence was a Roger who built a drum machine. And then I go on to my big, biggest mentor besides Roger Lynn is Roger Nichols who built the Wendell. The other. Um, yeah, the Wendell drum machine. I mean, yeah. The, the, the so, uh, Crazy. How weird is that, huh? That's just unbelievable. So Roger was working at the village when you were working with on asia so that was is that how 
Well, mm-hmm. Roger Nichols yeah. was uh, the engineer hired. There are no in-house engineers at that time. You only had assistants, and you brought in, Whoever you know, you the the artists and the producer, whatever. Um, brought in their own engineer or if they didn't have one the studio would recommend one but they were all independent contractors nobody worked at the studio I see. but assistant engineers who knew the rooms and knew everything and could be the liaison between the the talent and the production team and the studio so that's what assistants are that's the hardest job recording oh actually no it's it takes you're dealing with so many different personalities yes. you're keeping things moving forward you're, yeah. you're getting you know you're running out to get things like well they have a runner probably too with you but. well they would have a runner and or interns to do that but uh being an assistant uh is you're a part of both camps you know you are part of the production team but part of the studio team too and you have to remember who signs your paychecks so you don't you know, get talked into doing stuff that, you know, sure. you shouldn't do. And um, I have a story about that, oh, too. Let's hear it. Yeah. Well, because <laughs> um, I can tell. I, can I tell love the, I now. love your stories. Yeah. <laughs> well, are... this is a good story okay. that I wasn't able to tell for a long time. And okay. now nobody's going to care. But the important thing is, you know, well, you'll see what that is. Um, <laughs> it's uh during the Asia album that had gone on and on and on and on and on, well, one day um, we're waiting for Walter to come in, and he didn't come in. So Donald and Gary Katz and Roger Nichols and I went and played basketball at the high school, which <laughs> if you've seen these guys, it, the image of that is pretty funny right there. They're not um, yeah. athletes. Yeah. But we had to kill time till Roger got in there. So we did that for a little bit, and we're... Walking down the hallway to the studio, I bouncing, you know, Donald's bouncing the basketball, and we open the door, and Walter's sitting in front of the console, and there's like six suits from Warner Brothers behind him, <laughs> and and he goes, oh, so glad you could show up, and Donald spins around, throws me the basketball, I grab the basketball, <laughs> boom, out the, out of the room. And nothing for two hours. And we're waiting in the lobby and waiting, going, oh, my God, what's going on in there? And um, so... Um, the bean counters. Oh, yeah. And, saying, and so they leave, and so Gary Katz goes, Lenise, get in here. And uh, so they've had a powwow, and this is what was going on. The record company came in and said, you're done with this record. We're taking the tapes and having a mix someplace else because you're over budget, you're over time, everything's done. And somehow they managed to not do that uh, that day, but said, this is what's going to happen. And then they leave. And so they call me in, the assistant. And this is the plan they've come up with. Every night after work, uh, I'm going to take the tapes home with me in the back of my little Toyota Corolla. Oh, my God. You're carrying Asia around? And you're... It, it, yeah, the master <laughs> two inches. Every this, night. I did that for like three weeks. This is a really good studio secret. Then, I love it. See, can you see why I could never tell this story for yeah. a long time? Oh. Uh, <laughs> I can. <laughs> well, and, and the reason I wanted to, to, if I was willing to do it, one of the main reasons was my roommate was the... Um, uh, studio uh 
she was more than a receptionist. She ran the office and did all that there, but sure. she knew everything yep. all the time. She knew everything about everybody Kept all the time. Kept track of everything. So what better thing for me was to drive home late at night, uh, past her bedroom window where she's asleep knowing I've got the Asia album in the back of my car and go into the garage and then drive them back to work each night. And I don't know what... They're I, heavy, too. Well, it helped. No, because you uh, you make master reels. Right. So you have all the songs on two oh, reels. Oh, so the master takes. Yeah, the master, two-inch two, yeah. two inch masters. Not it's all the safeties like, and all that stuff. Oh, God, no. Yeah. No, no. Who, yeah. who cares about that? Yeah. Uh, they just want the masters that yeah. they've been working on that haven't been mixed yet. And so I'm taking them home. In the back of my car, I've got speakers you know, yeah. in the, you know, the back speakers in your car that are yeah. the back of the magnets or in <gasps> your trunk. <gasps> yeah, yeah. Who can, nobody thought about that. Um, but what even worse, the whole point of me taking them home was because they wanted to make sure if the record company came in and said, we're taking the tapes, nobody would know where they were. Well, okay, nobody would know where they were except who would know. Oh, the assistant would know. Um, we'll call Lenise. Um That never occurred to anybody either. Nobody thought about that, that, uh, oh, who would know? The assistant. That would be Lenise. We'll call Lenise. Well, fortunately, they never came for that. And fortunately, that never came up because I was stealing, basically. The tapes. What, uh, I would be... Uh, Arrested for stealing master tapes. Uh, wow. The chances of the band standing behind me on this, pretty zero. Yeah. <laughs> pretty zero. Wow. Um, you know, and uh, I share this story in workshops and studio protocol and procedure courses <laughs> I teach to just let you know, wait a second. Um, remember who signs your check, and it's not the band you're working for and it's not the record company you're working for when you're an assistant you're working for that studio and if not only would i have been fired i would have been arrested wow. and have felony theft on my hands and no backup from anybody and so that's how stupid <laughs> that was that i did that that's but, crazy and that they would ask me to do that yeah and I agreed. <laughs> That's the, you know, I could have said, you're out of your mind. Are you kidding me? I'll go to jail. I could have said that, but I didn't. That's just incredible. Did they speed up the record-making process once they were well, told they had three weeks? They Did, did anything uh, speed up? You know what? All of that stuff is kind of out of my hands, you know, of those negotiations and everything. We, we were so close to the end by then anyway. What was, a, what was a typical mix on, on, on Asia? Like, how many days would they spend mixing a song? Well, see, that's the thing. The only song we mixed at the village was Peg. And turns out it was mixed in other places as well. Come to find out um, that uh, all along I thought, well, the song Peg that's on the album is the one that we mixed at the village because... They did. That had to be done that morning, the next morning by 8 o'clock. Wow. So we worked all from noon the day before all night long, and Roger mixed that, and then it went out. And as far as I knew, 
that's the one that went on the record. And years later, um, in a discussion uh, that Al Schmidt was there, and we were sitting around talking about that, and somebody asked me how, and I said, well, we only mixed Peg, and, and Al goes, uh, I mixed Peg. Oh, my goodness. And I went, <gasps> Really? Oh, uh, well... Uh, we did too. And, um, <laughs> that's crazy. So that's Al Schmidt's mix on the album, or do we I know? I don't know. We don't know. Well, also what I found out too. Yeah, this is uh, great. Good. Talking to Bill Schnee on a Zoom thing, and he, um, because we cut several tracks uh, from Asia at the Village. Some had already been cut in New York, and put on a master reel. So I didn't know where it was recorded or sure. you know by the time i got it it was just put on a village label right um so i don't know what those were and then we cut other versions of the big basic tracks here in los angeles so it turns out and bill shay had cut some at another studio in los angeles uh and uh i don't know which ones that's fascinating I, who were you know, uh, the reason, the way I can tell uh, is when I read the credits, who's playing on them. And if uh, they were, you know, Bernard Purdy or, um, you know, different people doing Chuck the basic Rainey. tracks. Well, Chuck Rainey, see, also what happened was that they would often do a whole tracking date with a, a work vocal to yep. get the vibe, yep. but mostly, and, and a tracking date back in those days meant bass, drums, guitar, basic tracks. Yeah. Not today when somebody says, I'm, when we're tracking today, that means they're recording like me right now. Yeah. Or, you know, one person yeah. or one thing. A tracking date typically was understood yeah. to be, you know... The rhythm section. The, the rhythm section, maybe, you know, they were trying to capture everything. Who knows? But... If they kept anything, it was the drums because right. they could replace everything else, and many times they did. Yeah. So, no matter who thought they did the bass in <laughs> New York, it was Chuck Rainey here. He yeah. Chuck Rainey pr pretty much replaced everybody. Yeah. And um, That's what so, I uh, just cutting the basic tracks was nice, but it didn't mean they were used. Sure. And those guys except were just, the drums. Yeah, they were so meticulously trying so many different things mm -hmm. on a mix like peg do you do you, were you guys using automation back then or was it all hands-on like um do you remember all hands-on yeah there wow. wasn't automation then wow all right that wraps up our first episode with lenise she'll be back next time with um, the second part and thanks for tuning in to studio secrets a to z don't forget to subscribe achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? 
Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at IntoHistory.com.